0: Today, I am here with Assistant Professor Divi Chari, who is a, an awardee in the Catalyst Translational Innovator Program, but I thought that she would be a great guest on this podcast because she has some really cool mm-hmm. things to share, and not only about her research, but some thoughts about being a clinician researcher. So Divya, do you wanna go ahead and introduce yourself?
1: Yes, I would love to. So hi everyone, my name is Divya Chari. As Hardeep mentioned, I am an assistant professor in otolaryngology. I split my time. So I'm in the Department of Otolaryngology Head Neck Surgery at UMass Memorial out in Worcester, Massachusetts. And that's where my clinical practice primarily is. And then I also have a research appointment at Massachusetts Eye and Ear and Harvard Medical School and have a research lab that's focused basically on the translational science of Meniere's disease at Massachusetts Eye and Ear. I did my residency training at the University of California, San Francisco, um, and I finished that in 2019. And then I did a fellowship in otology, neurotology, and skull base surgery at Mass Eye and Ear in Boston and then have stayed on basically in Massachusetts in the Boston area ever since then.
0: Great. And so do you want to talk about your research? And well, first of all, I want to ask you how you find it kind of going between UMass and Mass Eye You know, you're in two different places, spending your time, but how, I mean, how is that in terms of your work and your research and getting, you know, the logistics of it and operationalizing that as well? Because I thought that was kind of, that's an interesting thing to, to be navigating as well.
1: Yeah, th- that's a great question. So this position is actually a little bit of an unusual position in that, you know, most of my clinical practice is at a different institution, really, than my research. Th- there are a lot of benefits, though, to this situation. And I can chat a little bit about that. The first is that, you know, th- so I graduated from fellowship kind of in the height of the pandemic. I was looking for jobs in January of 2020 and in January, you know, that was when I was in my first year of fellowship. January of 2020, there were a ton of jobs open, you know, everywhere I looked. It was like, you, you're a neurotologist, great. You're in high demand. Here are all the jobs available. And then March of 2020 hit and the pandemic, pandemic hit us. And all of a sudden it was like looking into a desert. I mean, it was just all of these job prospects had totally dried up and there weren't a lot of really great opportunities. I got really lucky in that UMass had been looking for a clinical otologist, neurotologist for some time. They UMass is, has the benefit of being in a very, very busy clinical area. It has a huge catchment area that includes a lot of New England, including parts of New Hampshire, Vermont, Maine. Rhode Island, as well as central Massachusetts. And so it, there's just a huge need for, own, there was a huge need for an oncologist. and so they were looking pretty seriously at wanting to hire somebody. I knew when I was in my fellowship that I was pretty interested in academics. I wanted to stay in the academic arena, and my research was very important to me. And my research is quite specific and requires a really you know, an infrastructure to be able to accomplish a lot of it. And so what I was able to set up, which was really great, was basically a clinical agreement at UMass where I'm able to have this really busy, very fruitful a very interesting clinical practice, along with joint agreement where I can basically spend my research time at Massarineer, which has a lot of the infrastructure and resources needed to be able to accomplish a lot of the work that I wanted to do. And so the benefit of a situation like that is that you're not asking one institution to do everything for you, right? A lot. This isn't always true, but it's often the case that the institution that has the best resources and research infrastructure doesn't necessarily have the best clinical volume for junior faculty. And, you know, the place that has incredible clinical volume for somebody who's just starting out in their career may not be the place that has all of the infrastructure and the resources and the setup that you might need to, like, have a really productive and fruitful research career. And so by combining these two places, I think I'm really able to get the best of both worlds. And, you know, I can really tap into a lot of the resources that Mass Eye and Ear has to offer from the Otopathology Lab to, you know, you know, number of, you know, patients with very specific disease processes and disorders. A lot of my mentors really are coming from Massioneer. My research mentors, I mean, are coming from Massioneer. And, and so I can, you know, use and ask for their help and resources in that way. A lot of the equipment that we need from a research standpoint is located there. So that's been very helpful. And then the flip side, you know, where I spend a little over half my time is at UMass, you know, where I can have a really busy caseload and be seeing patients in the clinic, operating on these patients and surgically managing a lot of these diseases. So those are all the benefits of it. The downsides sort of come down to the logistics, which is that it's hard to split your time. And this, I think the overarching issue is that it's it's just hard to be a clinician scientist. You always feel like you're being pulled in two separate directions, right? There's all the clinical needs, which it's a full-time job. You know, you can easily get sucked into that for 100% or more than 100% of your time because there's needs that patients have, that your staff have. You know, there's feels like there's always a need to see more patients and do more in the operating room and in clinic. And then research is also, it feels like a full-time job, right? It, I mean, it, it is for many people and it can be depending on how much time and effort you want to spend on it. And so it's, I think it can be hard to sort of almost split your brain into, to and say, okay, I'm going to compartmentalize. Today is going to be a day where I'm going to be in the operating room treating patients. And today is going to be a day when I'm going to be writing a grant proposal or I'm going to be, you know, analyzing data. I think for me, ultimately, I love that. I love that split. I think it keeps everything fresh. You know, today, for example, I was in the operating room and it was a wonderful day. I had such a great day. It was really fun. But I think knowing that, you know, in you know, later this week, I'm going to have a day to kind of decompress and maybe do some writing and some creative thinking and, you know, think about some of the bigger research questions and the why behind what we do really keeps me going and like helps me have what I think of as like a fulfilling career. So I think that's the underlying issue that it's just hard to split your time between being a clinician and being a scientist. You know, for me personally, the logistics of having UMass and Mount Sinier is that the biggest hurdle is really the distance between the two. And so, you know, one is located out in Worcester, which is 50 minutes to an hour outside of Boston. And the other is located in Boston proper. And so it's kind of the logistics of having to be wise with time management, spend time when I can in, you know, in one place and then have to really compartmentalize and be in a different location and a different frame of mind another day.
0: Yeah. So one of the things that I was interested in as you were talking was that this split between being a surgeon, essentially, and a researcher. And one of the people I have spoken to is Anita Dewar, who is a vascular surgeon. And for her, it seemed like the surgery was her thing, that that's where she gets in the zone you know, she gets in that kind of that flow state that is amazing when you do achieve it. And I was just curious whether you feel the same way about when you do surgery.
1: Yes, I do. I, well, I I would, I would say yes, but with...
0: I mean, it's okay if you don't, right? I mean, it's okay if you don't, but I was struck by that. But then, you know, you're talking about being a clinician scientist, you know, you're splitting this Part of you in two, but it seems it felt a bit different in the way you were describing it.
1: Yeah, and and maybe that's the difference of how I think about it, or just how I you know think about my role. I think I would say that I'm similar in that I definitely you know one of the things that I just love about being in the operating room is that you do get into that zone, right? I mean, it's just for me, ear surgery is so delicate and so beautiful. The anatomy is sort of so fascinating and. There's just, it's true microsurgery, right? There's the smallest bone in the human body is the sapis bone. And so I think there's, to me, the reason I love ear surgery is that there's something so beautiful and incredible about being able to do the exact same thing for ear surgery every single time, but every single case is a little bit different. And so you can really get into this zone of like, this is what we want to do and when we're dealing with chronic ear surgery, this is what we're doing, or we're doing a tumor section, this is what we're doing. And so in that sense, when you said this thing about like, you know, getting into the zone or into this flow state, I totally identify with that. I think that is absolutely what can happen and what often does happen. And it's one of the things that I just love. I mean, one of the, this sounds a little funky to say, but one of the best things about being a surgeon is that there are a few things in, in a few jobs where you get so into it that you're completely disconnected from everything else. And that's what happens in the operating room, right? I mean, I am totally, you know, Yes, I have my phone and it's there and people can reach me in an emergency perhaps, but for the most part, it's on silent, right? And, and so you can't get a hold of me if I'm in the operating room. There are no distractions, there's nothing else, it's just sort of the patient, the procedure, the thing right in front of you. And I think for me that I love that part of my job. The part where I would say I disagree or maybe or I'm a little bit different maybe is that for me, even though I love that part of my life, I also love other parts right so it's this idea of like you know i don't necessarily want to have a life where i'm in the operating room five days a week you know i that doesn't necessarily make me super happy like i love the fact that i also get to see patients in clinic talk to them before surgery talk to them after surgery see how they do see the impact of what i've done and then on top of that i love being able to sort of disconnect completely from the clinical side of things and think about the bigger picture or the why that we might be doing something or how we can potentially improve the standard of care, you know, and I think that's what research allows me to do. It allows me to take a step back and say, hey, there's something bigger than just the patient in front of me there. You know, we can potentially affect a lot of patients' lives through work that we might do. And so that, I think, is where I feel like this. there's this little bit of this brain split, and I love both sides of it. The other piece of this, which I'll say, is I think doing the clinical piece of it, really allows me to inform my research and vice versa. You know, I feel like doing the research helps me become a better clinician. And I think that's kind of, that feels important to me, you know.
0: Yeah, I mean, as you were talking, it seemed also that when you said, you know, you like to have that research day or that day when when you're focused on that, the creative side of of the research and thinking and, and writing and what comes next, and how to you know kind of put it together was something that I thought for me it seemed to me that you lit up when you were talking about that
1: yeah, yeah, absolutely which which is I think what keeps me going with it, right, because otherwise there isn't you know th- there isn't a lot of incentive, I think unfortunately to try to do both it's It's hard to do both there's a lot of reasons to not, there's a lot of reasons to focus. Solely on research or for, in my case, really solely on clinical, you know, side of things, because, you know, for most people, that's where a lot of the incentives are. That's where salary goes. And that's where you can really, you know, also affect a lot of change. Like, And you can do a lot of good in a really short and quick way. You know, that's not often not how research is. Research takes a really long time to get anywhere. And so I think for me, at least there has to be something else about it that keeps me going to keep me interested in research. And for me, there's a couple of things. One is the teaching aspect of it. I really enjoy that. I keep, you know, I find it interesting. I find it fun. I find it enjoyable. But the other piece of it is this, again, like I was saying, this creative side of it, you know, being able to sit down and say, OK, I'm going to I'm going to write or I'm going to read or I'm going to think. And that's going to help me be a better clinician, a better researcher, all these different things.
0: So you know we're talking about research. Do you want to talk a bit about your research? The you know you've been funded through Catalyst and the the things that you're looking at and the really cool piece of equipment platform that gave me bad motion sickness when I came to test it out, but it was fun nevertheless. <laughs> Absolutely.
1: So our lab is really focused on. Looking at Meniere's disease. So Meniere's disease is a a really challenging problem of the inner ear. It's a chronic degenerative disorder that causes fluctuations in hearing and episodes of vertigo, but it's ultimately a degenerative process in, in which the ear ultimately loses function. The ear does two things. It does hearing and it does balance. And so losing those two things mean that people can be left with severe to profound hearing loss and with no balance function in that ear. It is a debilitating disorder. And unfortunately, there's just not a lot that we understand about it, both in terms of the pathophysiology, meaning the the underlying underpinnings of the disease process, the genetic etiology, and also, you know, really good, we don't have really good ways to treat it. A lot of the ways that we have to treat it in a definitive way are to really ablate or kind of kill off the ear, which aren't really great things. You know, the analogy is like... Somebody comes in with a paper cut and you say, well, I can solve your problem by cutting off your finger. It's like, "Okay, yeah, I guess that would solve this problem. But it's not like that really solves the problem. So you're not really getting at the underlying root cause. And so our lab is focused on trying to, you know, work on Meniere's disease in a couple of different ways. One is by trying to understand which parts of the inner ear are most affected and trying to differentiate it from another disorder that is Very similar, presents in a very similar way clinically, which is a disease called vestibular migraine. And so to do this, we put people in a really special machine that moves them up and down or side to side or tilts them. It's sort of like a fancy rotator machine, if you can imagine that. And by doing that, we then have them respond and say which way they think they moved. And that gives us information about which organ or organs are affected in the inner ear. And that can help us to differentiate one disease from another. Another piece in our lab is to look at imaging. So we do really, really high resolution MRI scans of the inner ear with contrast that allow us to look at tiny structures in the inner ear that can help us differentiate things about Meniere's disease and identify what stage somebody might be in or how affected they are. And we're hoping to be able to use those for different treatment and, you know, understanding the progression of the disease. And then the final aspect of my lab is really to look at some of the genetics of Meniere's disease and try to understand some of the underpinnings of the disease process. And so we're trying to subdivide Meniere's disease into different categories and using imaging, using genetics, using, you know, blood tests, different kinds of things like that to try and understand why different people You know, there can be 10 different people with Meniere's disease, but they can all behave in 10 different ways. And so we want to understand what different etiologies can do and what different subtypes of Meniere's disease there can be.
0: So with Meniere's disease, it's specifically inner inner ear versus vestibular being like a central nervous system that sort of starts off in in your, your brain. So this is a really silly question, but with Meniere's disease, can you give, I mean, really, this is a very silly question, but can you give like a cortisone shock or a something like that kind of, you know, or like, I don't know, pain killing thing? Does, does anything like
1: that work? That's actually not a silly question at all. That is one of the treatments for Menears disease. So we do dexamethasone injections into the ear. So The ear consists of the external ear canal, the middle ear space, and then the inner ear. Meniere's disease is a problem of the inner ear. It's a problem of the cochlea and the vestibular end organs or the balance end organs of the inner ear. And so we can inject steroid or dexamethasone through the eardrum, so it sits in the middle ear space, and diffuses, naturally diffuses through what's called the round window to get into the inner ear. That is, a, is actually a well-established treatment of Meniere's disease. It's something I use really frequently. The idea is maybe we're in, decreasing some of the inflammation of the inner ear. To be honest, the mechanism by which that works is really kind of unknown. We don't know. really, And that's true for a lot of uses for steroids, like steroid injections that go into, you know, inflammatory conditions of joints or things like that. Um, we don't fully understand exactly what the mechanism is. And we certainly don't for Meniere's disease about like exactly why that helps. But it does seem to help. It doesn't help in everybody, but it helps in about, in my practice, in about half of patients. So that's a great question.
0: Does it last? How long does it last? It, it really varies. If it
1: works, it can last, you know, days, months, weeks, you know, maybe even years. But it, 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 it's not like, oh, I, it's not like somebody can come in and I say, oh, we're going to do the dexamethasone injection. And you're going to be good for six months. It really, the disease is so variable that we just kind of treat it as, as it comes. Okay.
0: And so then, and is it the same as, you know, getting a a cortisone shot in in one of the joints that you get like two or three lifetime kind of thing? No, you can
1: get it as many times as you would like. So I have some patients who, you know, have it a lot of times. have had it 10, 15 times, let's say. But most people, if their vertigo symptoms are severe enough and the dexamethasone just isn't doing the trick, then we start escalating treatment. So we kind of we don't continue that indefinitely unless it seems to be providing some benefit, but it's pretty well tolerated. I mean, we just do a little drop of numbing medication on the eardrum, which stings for a moment, but then goes away. And then as the fluid goes in, people feel a little bit dizzy, but otherwise it's very well tolerated. It's, it's a single procedure. It's done right in the clinic. They go home that same day. You know, the whole thing takes maybe 10 minutes and they can go about there, you know, they can go back to work. So it's not, you know, particularly invasive or anything like that.
0: So it isn't that you have this many a disease and you're like, that's it, you know, there's new, there's nothing you can do about it. So there is some things, some things that can be done about it. Absolutely treatable.
1: The problem is the treat, you know, we, we, I think of it sort of like a ladder treatment. Okay, we start with the least invasive down here and then we gradually work our way up. The problem with the most invasive things is that like, like that paper cut analogy, right, we're like, killing or ablating the ear. So removing function, it means that people have a high risk of hearing loss with some of those more intense treatments and they lose balance function in that ear. So they have to, you know, relearn how to compensate for that loss of balance function using their other ear, their eyes, their brain, other types of balance organs. But so that's the problem with the treatments that we have that they're not very targeted, but they can work really well. I mean, we have a pretty good high rate of getting rid of vertigo. I would say 95 to 99% of patients, we get rid of the vertigo eventually. So, yeah.
0: So there, there's hope for them and sort of... Hope. There's, oh, well no, difficult disease. It's it's a chronic disease process, but it's, it's treatable. Kind of like, you know, if we go to your paper cut analogy, you know, it's sort of a bit like, you know, you have a paper cut, it's sort of annoyingly painful and you put a Band-Aid on it because, you know, you want to do something and... You, I'm just going to say squeeze a lemon or something like that, and it's going to sting. And then, but when you put the band-aid on, you lose sensation in in that finger, and you kind of like now can't you know it, it gets in the way yep. of the of of it's like I was squeezing the lemon. It sort of you know it, yeah. And I guess that you know if you want to keep on going, it would get <laughs> even more annoying to be able to squeeze a lemon with this paper. You know, it give you take it all the way to like chipping off your finger, you know, now, now you, you've, you've lost that finger. Yeah. For the, and the dexterity of being able to squeeze that lemon is. Uh, exactly right.
1: Yeah. That's, I, yeah, that's a great, great point. Yeah. So it makes squeezing the lemon really difficult. And in the same way, like you lose your hearing function, you lose your balance function in that ear. Can you compensate for it? Can you figure out how to squeeze a lemon without a finger? Yeah, for sure. You can. It's just harder. So And our hope with finding better treatments and being able to diagnose Meniere's disease better is maybe we can find more tailored treatments for it.
0: And and sort of going to the genetic side of things, you know, is is there a genetic
1: component to this? Uh, So we don't we don't know. That's like one of the big questions that we have is, is there a genetic component to Meniere's disease? We... In in our lab, we we suspect that at least one subtype of Meniere's disease may have some genetic component to it. There seems to be some promising data to suggest that there are a subpopulation of Meniere's patients who tend to have very severe disease. It tends to be bilateral, meaning occurring in both ears, and they seem to have some characteristic imaging findings that maybe have a genetic underlying, you know, association. There's no known gene for Meniere's disease. So it's not like there's a particular gene that gets inactivated or has some problem that we know of. But I think the fact that we can identify this subgroup of patients clinically that are very similar is promising. And so one of the projects that we have is to really dig into this particular subgroup and try and see, can we identify some genetic
0: underpinnings of this disease? Cool. And so I want to kind of change crack a little bit away from your research but sort of as a sort of relatively junior investigator you know you talked about your mentors in in terms of research and you know most of the people I've had on here have been they have well-established labs they have postdocs students undergrads come through and they are mentors to, to these people and so they have told me what it's like for them to be a mentor or what they do, but you know, on your side of things, what what would you like to see in a, in a mentor? You know, if you, if we were going to talk to those senior people as a junior person, what 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 do you? Who's your ideal mentor? Or how how would they you know act?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great question. So the first thing I'll say about that is you know, being in medicine is sort of a it's, it's an in, unusual path in that. So I, I, my career path has been very long thus far, right? So, you know, that the, I've had many mentors over my career. And even though my life as an attending has been fairly short, I'm only two years in, you know, I've been a student and a mentee and a trainee for a very long time. And so, you know, I think I've had mentors dating back to being in medical school and residency and fellowship. And even now as a, you know, more junior faculty, I have people who are, I consider mentors. And I think the, the challenge is that at different points or stages in your career trajectory, you sort of need and look for different things in a mentor. In general, what I will say is this. In general, in a mentor, what I really look for and what I found to be very helpful And what I hopefully try to be now as, you know, becoming a mentor for students and medical students and things like that in residence is that, number one, I want to be available. That's, I think, one of the most important things. The second thing is I really try to make it or I like when it is a collaborative process. You know, I think when mentors approach the process of mentoring by really thinking about how can they further and help a student's career, And what can they provide? That's when it can become a really fruitful relationship. There are lots of mentors out there, you know, who are really interested in furthering their own research goals or their own agendas. And sometimes that can be mutually beneficial. Sometimes you both get what you want out of it. But I think some of the best mentors are people who really are trying to help you create the best best research paths for yourself and help you establish what you want to get out of your research. And so those would be the two things. You know, I think the It changes a little bit, right? So the oversight that you need as a medical student, for example, and a mentor is much more than somebody like me now where I'm, you know, I have my own lab and the kind of mentorship that I want and look for is kind of the big picture. Like, how do I think about something? You know, where should I go next? What are kind of the big picture ideas that's helpful to bounce ideas off of somebody? But as a medical student, the kind of mentorship that you're really looking for is really somebody who has concrete ideas, who understands... What you're able to tackle at that stage of your training and can kind of package something for you nicely and allow you to take that on and really take ownership of it. I also think that one of the big things about being a mentor and person is it's also so this is changing from research track and really to the clinical side of things, because I think a big part of mentorship happens on the clinical side of things, at least in, in my life. And I've had a lot of really great clinical mentors who just are able to kind of teach and guide and like open my eyes to something so interesting. And I think they've done that in a couple of ways. One is that they're excited and interested in what they do. And I think that shines through and it helps me get there. It helps students want to do what you're doing because you're so excited about what you're doing. So that's number one. The second thing is really being open enough to let Students into your thought process and your way of thinking and your sort of reasoning. You know, it's hard to do because not everybody is at the same stage in their training, but I find that the best training I've had from especially mentors in residency and fellowship have been the mentors who allow me to see when they are unsure, when they're trying to make a decision and they're not quite sure what the right answer is, or when they have made a decision, but they talk me through what their reasoning is. And that's where I've often learned the most. And so I try to do a lot of that now when I have medical students or residents or fellows in my room. You know, I try to talk to them a lot about like, all right, so this is my decision making process. This is why we landed here. This is what I'm thinking I want to do next and kind of talk them through that process, because I think that really helps further their education or at least it did for me. And it really helps me, you know, I think what it, where it's really helped me is now being in attending, there have been so many moments where I've, you know, had moments of doubt and I've said, oh man, like, what should I do? Like, I wish there were just somebody in the room that I could turn to and kind of knowing or having the back of my head that like, yeah, everybody has those moments and you just have to think through it, like think through it logically. What would you do next? What do you want to do next? Like, how do you want to reason through this is really helpful. And so I think that's what I try to impart to my students and that's what I think, fantastic mentors have done for me.
0: Great. As you were talking, something sort of popped into my head that in the world, in the in your field, because this is a it's a joint committee on the as of women and it's about furthering the careers of women in medicine, in science, and you know, Stanford, the medical school, one of the things that kind of popped into my mind was in your field, what is the ratio of male to female you know because like, like I said with my with the person who I had talked to in one of the earlier ones she's a vascular surgeon and it's a heavily male-dominated field and so you know she so talked a little bit about that but I was just curious about in your area how how does it look
1: yeah. So surgery in general tends to be a male-dominated field. That is absolutely true. And it's true across the board. Otolaryngology or ENT, which is my field, tends to be a little bit more female-friendly than vascular surgery, for example. I The latest numbers that I've seen are something like 60-40. So actually more women than men, or at least half. Now in terms of trainees, not in terms of all otolaryngologists, but in terms of trainees, there tend to be more female trainee otolaryngologists than male trainees. In terms of, you know, practicing otolaryngologists, it's still more heavily men. But, you know, I think there is still a culture of, you know, surgery and being in the operating room really being a kind of a male-dominated field. That's just how it has been traditionally. A lot of that's changing, but but that's just how it's been. I think where I have really noticed it or really thought about it was Not so much actually in residency or fellowship. That those were places where, you know, being a woman didn't wasn't really something that necessarily crossed my mind all that much, or really was something that I thought of, or really seemed to be so much of a day-to-day thing. Where I think I've really started to notice differences is actually now being an attending. And I think there are different hurdles and challenges that women often encounter in the operating room, in the clinic, with patients, and just sort of like the progression of kind of what's expected that's a little bit different from residency and fellowship. So I think that, you know, that's where I have really noticed some changes. And it's been it's a little challenging sometimes to navigate some of those things. I think, you know, it's certainly not, you know, when we think about sexism in the workplace and we think about challenges that women face. I think things are a lot better now, for example, than they were even 20, 30, 40 years ago, of course. But I think there's still room to go. I think we have growth in a lot of those areas
0: for sure. And what about as a woman of color? Any thoughts on that as, you know, as well? Absolutely. I think so. I am a woman of color
1: and I think that there are always challenges with being a a woman and a woman of color in the operating room, especially and outside of the operating room. And, you know, in terms of seeing patients and having staff and things like that. You know, there have been some really interesting studies about this and how people, so for example, people have looked at like referral patterns to female surgeons, right? And there was a really great study that came out of Stanford that looked at how people referred to general surgery females and if there was a complication. And if there was a complication, regardless of the surgeon's gender or sex, the the referrals generally dropped across the board. But they dropped not by that much if the surgeon was a man. If the surgeon was a woman, they tended to drop a lot and the drop was sustained, meaning that the referral stayed low for a long time. And I think about that because that's always a fear of mine, right? It's like, you know, we do risky things in surgery, bad things can happen. And the question is, how do people see it? Do they see it like, oh, that was just a bad day or that was a one-off or that was just an anomaly? Or is it oh, that's a pattern. That's somebody I don't want to refer to. I don't want to keep sending patients to that person because I don't think they're actually a good surgeon. And so I do think there are maybe some challenges that women and women in color face in terms of just sort of biases and in terms of referrals, which is where a lot of our volume comes from and things like that. But I think, you know, the flip side of all that I'll say is that I I also think that it's important to have representation i think it's important for patients that we see representation right that we see women that we see women in, of color and that we that we increase the number of people who are providing different types of care because i think different patients want and need different things and i think having that diversity is is a really good thing
0: yeah for for sure i mean we we do not want a world full of well all white men, uh, especially, but um, (laughs) no, but you know, a world full of lots of different people is, is, is is so much better just for, for, for many different reasons. So, so one of the things that, that you had spoken about is, is this sort of challenge of being a researcher and a surgeon and a clinician and like, if you could say to whoever would be listening, you could like grant your wishes, you know, what What would that, what would it look like to, to have a good balance? You know, how how would you get that balance, I guess?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, I think a lot of it has to do with what sort of infrastructure you're able to create and develop in place. Right. So I think on the clinical side, you know, Balance is a lot easier when you have a team of people behind you, supporting you and helping you get somewhere. Right. And that's where and the same is true for research. Right. Like it's a lot easier to run a research lab when you have, you know, multiple postdocs and people and it sort of becomes a little bit self-sustaining. It's not you know, your research is not driven just by you. It's driven by lots of people. And so it becomes a little bit easier to be, you know, the person who's kind of overseeing multiple things compared to doing some of the work yourself and, you know, the day to day. Now, there are challenges with being a manager in itself and challenges with, you know, overseeing work, and it requires a lot of responsibility and a lot of time as well. But I think that that's where some of those things can become a little bit more self-sustaining and they can become more doable, you know. Going back a little bit to that question of like, you know, being a woman and a woman of color is, you know, one of the challenges that I see is that it's hard to sometimes convince people that you are the person they should follow or that you can be a leader. And I think that's, you know, what I see. I see this in a lot of my peers. I see this in some of my mentors. But I think the people who are most successful are the people who can outline a vision for what they want. And like Get people to buy into that vision so that they want to follow that person. They want to say, yeah, this is a person I want to hitch my wagon to because they seem like they're going places. And I know that working for them or working with them is going to be mutually beneficial. And I think, you know, sometimes those biases can be challenging. It can be hard sometimes when you don't look like what somebody might, you know, see as like a leader or you don't seem like somebody that they're saying, oh, yeah, this person's really going to go somewhere. And so you, you kind of have to convince people that like, yeah, no, I really am here for the right, you know, I'm, I'm really going to do great things and you should join me because I do have a vision for what should happen. And I think that's where, you know, the mentors that I've worked with and the people that I've worked with who have really been successful have had a really clear vision and been able to convince people that they can do that. And, and that becomes self-fulfilling too, right? The more that you can convince great people that you are going to do great things, the more that great people are going to work with you and you really are going to surround yourself with a team that's going to be fantastic. And so I think that's one of the things that I think is probably the most, probably the keys to success, I think.
0: What's your call to action, let's say, you know, about, you know, having people join you in, in your lab or, you know? Well, my call to action would be
1: simply in talking about what it is that we're going to do. You know, how are we going to change the world of Meniere's disease? And I, I think we have some really exciting and fun things that we have ahead. And I think there's so many different avenues that we can go. The other thing I'll say is that I hope and I want to be the type of person and the mentor and the and the advisor that is available, that that cares about the whole person. Right. You know, that's one of the things that I think is so important. It's like, you know, going back to that mentor who's sort of like, yeah, I'm just in it so that you'll do some work for me for a few months or a year or a couple of years. You know, we'll get some papers out of it and then you go about your business. Like, no, I want to help you develop your career wherever that's where you want to go. You know, for medical students, it's often getting into residency. You know, for residents, it's getting into fellowship or developing whatever niche that you need to develop so that you can be successful in your career and you can kind of further your own goals. And I think really diving into what it is that that individual is looking for and helping them. Sometimes part of it is just helping them articulate what it is that they want, right? A lot of people come to me. I have a lot of students who reach out to me and say, you know, can I work with you on research? And, you know, they they want to work with on research because they've been told, like, that's what they're supposed to do. They have to do research to get into medical school or to get into residency. And I think helping them articulate what it is that they're looking for, what they want to get out of the experience is sometimes just as important and helps them kind of become a stronger like person, a stronger candidate, you know, all these different things.
0: Yeah, what you're saying really resonates with, with what the others who I've spoken to about being mentors is that it's about kind of guiding these postdocs, graduate students through so that they are then successful in their next, for their next position is, is really how, how they viewed being a mentor. Yeah. So as I'm kind of get close to the end of this great conversation, there are two questions that I always ask. One is one what is one- prove- professional skill It can be more than one professional skill that you're working on, and what is one well, more than one personal skill that you're working on?
1: Oh, great question, okay so I would say the professional skill that I'm still working on is probably grant writing you know it's it's hard to write grants. <laughs> And so I would say that is a skill that I am working on. You know, it's it's funny because it's also humbling. You know, I came in thinking like, I'm a pretty good writer. I know how to write and I'm good. And, you know, I can do all these things and things like that. And, you know, having grants not accepted, which I've certainly had my fair share of, having them destroyed and rewritten by people and sort of said, no, no, you're not writing clearly. You need to do this differently, really has been eye-opening. And so I think that is definitely something I am still working on. And hopefully, we'll continue to improve on. I think, you know, you every time you do a new iteration of a grant or a submission or things like that, you get better and better and better. And so, I think that it's a process. So that would be the professional skill. The personal skill I would say that I'm working on is really, you know, I think, you know, I was talking about kind of the the mentorship piece of it and really caring about where somebody's coming from. I think one of the things that I'm really trying to do as a mentor for medical students and for people in my lab and people that I work with is really trying to exercise a lot of patience. And sometimes what I've discovered, because I, I have the tendency to want to jump in, right? I want to jump in. I want to help out. I want to make things better. I want to rewrite the paper with you. I want to like help you get to the next thing. I want to answer the question for you. And sometimes I think the best thing you can do <laughs> is to sit back and say, you can do this. I'm here to support, but you got to figure this out. And I don't do a lot. of. I think I need to work on that. You know, it requires a lot of patience and it just requires kind of, you know, instilling that courage in somebody to say, you can do this, but like, you're going to do this yourself. And I think that that kind of patience is something I need to work on.
0: Yeah, I have a a post-it note up here. I mean, it's not it says it's got the acronym WAIT. Yeah. Oh. And it's uh, why am I talking? Yeah. Yes, exactly. And so, so, so I have that up here. So, to remind me to wait it out. So, the the flip
1: of that is, you know, I think it's normal or it's, it's often the the flip from going from a trainee or, a, you know, a, a graduate student or things, something like that, where you you're eager and you want to have the right answer and you want to push, push, push. And sometimes I think the flip of like helping somebody or mentoring somebody is kind of taking a step back and saying like, let them think through this, let them figure it out too. And I think that's the, you know, that's part of the wait part, right? It's Like jumping in to be like, yeah, I'm so eager and here's what we can do next. And da, 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 da. But like, maybe let's not do that. Let's let them come up with ideas because maybe they have great ideas, you know, like let's let that happen.
0: Right. And so what do what you do for fun? Outside of all of this this yep. incredible work you're doing and you know running back and forth between Worcester and Boston, you know yes, absolutely,
1: so I love hiking we 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 are a family of hikers. I have a two and a half year old daughter and a little mini Aussie dog. And so and my husband. So, the you know, we we all go on these really great hikes all the time. We're actually going to Zion National Park in a few weeks. So we're going to do some hiking there. So that's a lot of fun. I play the violin, actually. I've played the violin for a long time, and so that's something that I used to decompress and have fun with and things like that. And then I have a nasty addiction to reality TV shows, and I gotta tell you, I am so up to date on it. It is embarrassing. but uh, but yeah, so those are the things I like to do for fun. I mean, you know, I, I have to tell you. I never necessarily, I didn't necessarily think that we were going to end up in Massachusetts. It sort of happened by circumstance and luck and all these great things, but we've loved it. I mean, I absolutely love Massachusetts. I think there's so many fun things to do. We go to the museum all the time. We go out to eat all the time. I, that's one of my favorite things to do is to go out to nice restaurants and explore and things like that. So have a nice glass of wine. So it's been fantastic. I can't say that I'm lacking. I, I, I it's, it's been great.
0: No, it sounds great. Thanks, Stivia. This has been great. So much fun getting to know you and getting to hear about, you know, the work that you do and uh, the clinical side of things, which is not something we get to talk about in our, our other work. Yeah, no, this has been so
1: fantastic. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. So thank you. Thanks for having me on the podcast, too.